I know that we've been studying through the book of John faithfully on Sunday morning, but this psalm here, gripped my heart this week in reading. Psalm 85, starting in verse number 1. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou, dry, wilt, wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou revive us? Wilt thou not revive us again, and thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Right righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way. Of his steps. Seth, will you turn me down just a little bit? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we are gathered here this morning, we're excited for the opportunity to be in your word and study your word and glean what you have for us this morning in your word. Lord, the premise of this text is something that is a reality to all of us. It's a it's a desire in many of us and a question that is upon many of our hearts. Will you revive us again? Lord, I give thanks to you for all that you've done. Lord, we question not but magnify everything in which you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, well, when I was about 15 years old, my my dad bought me a ring for my birthday. Several years ago, I lost that ring. When I say that I turned upside down my entire house trying to find that ring, I turned up my entire house trying to find that ring, and I never found it. When, let's say two years ago, we were walking through the mall, me and Lauren, and we walked by the jewelers and seen a ring just like the ring that I had. My wife, knowing how much I wanted to find that ring, asked me, do you want to buy this one? And in my heart for a second, I'm like, of course. But then I turned around and said no, because it only reminds me of the ring that I used to have. 
I wanted the original ring. Psalms 85 is about a people who lost something that they desperately wanted back. This psalm is about a people who desired to be revived again. They desired to be restored again. Now, prior to this moment, they were in a land where there were many offerings or many imitations to say that we can satisfy you like your God did. There were many false deities that said that we can bring you joy like you once had when you worshipped your God. But time after time, it only proved out that there was no true joy found in those deities. Verse number 6 speaks of their longing when they say, Wilt thou not revive us again? Sin had led them to a place that they were. Re repentance was on their heart. Restoration was on their mind. They wanted to experience the previous joy that they once had in their Lord. Wilt thou not revive us again? This was not only a need for the people of God in Psalm 85, but this is a desperate need for God's people Today, it seems that the only place that we have accepted coldness in our lives is in the matter of our spiritual well-being. In our home, if we're cold, we turn the furnace on. When we're getting dressed, if we're cold, we put a sweater on. If our car is cold, we start it up and, and we warm it up. We go into a building, we turn the furnace on. The reality is that we are not made to thrive in cold. And neither is our spiritual life. That is the reality of this psalm. And this is the reality of all of us. We are not meant to be cold. When they are made aware of the situation, the pining of their heart is, Wilt thou revive us again? When I say that America, America Christianity, Christianity in America needs revival, I'm not suggesting to you that we need five sermons consecutively this week and call it revival and have someone preach it. I'm not suggesting that we need a tent out in the parking lot and call it revival. What I'm saying when I say that we need revival, I'm saying that we need a, a sovereign move from God. We need a supernatural move from God where he stirs up in people's hearts the love they had for Jesus once again. It's hard to answer to call the call to evangelize the world about someone we have fallen out in love with. It is something interesting when you see newlyweds, oh, when they first get married, how they goo-goo and gaga over each other, seemingly just bursting with love. And if we're honest with ourselves, the day that the Lord saved us, that is exactly how we were. But if we're honest with ourselves also, the joy, the excitement, the commitment that we love, the love we once had for the Lord, many of us have grown cold in that desire. Cold in that relationship. 
The church today, it seems that it is too preoccupied with reaching a culture. And because we're so focused on reaching a culture, much of our evangelism is unfruitful. We have become ineffective. And even more, the reason that the church has become ineffective is because when the world looks at the church, they see the world. And that's not the real problem. The real problem is when the Lord looks at the church, he sees the world. How in the world can we expect to be revived when our, when our dwelling, when our behavior is much like the world. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel? We need a heaven sent time in the house of God. That's what we need. We need a time in the house of God where there is no denying that God has opened the floodgates of heaven and poured it into the house of God. People seemingly today have become satisfied with sporadic worship. People have prioritized the desires of their own hearts over the desire that they should have for God. People have become stagnant, they have rationalized, they have theorized, and they have strategized about why they should not be in the house of God. But that's not the way things used to be. That's not the way things used to be in our own personal life. And it is only an example of the cry about why we need revival. Seems like Today, you hear it from many pastors that church members are crying that they need more things going on so that they could better enjoy worship. We need a spicing up to the worship hour. We need a spice up here so that we can thoroughly enjoy worship to its fullest potential. Understand that kind of thought process further proves your need for revival. Because when we arrive here, it's not about what I can do for you. It's not about how I stir you up to sing. It is about what has stirred up you to sing. It's about what is dwelling in you. The reality of who Christ is to you. Worship is about who God is. It's not about about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. So Psalm 85 is a prayer for revival. The inscription reads there, to the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. This song is a psalm of lament. Many believe that this psalm was written by the sons of Korah after they had been released from Babylonian captivity around 538 B.C. There in this time, the Israelites would be set free under Cyrus of Persia and be given the opportunity to rebuild Jerusalem. It was the Lord's doing. But once the people arrived there, the initial fervor that they had in this moment of escape had dwindled down. The work, the labor that was before them had seemed to bring them to a place where they had 
grown stagnant and overwhelmed. So they began to cry, wilt thou not revive us again? Regardless of the setting, it, it comes from a time where God's people need revival. The church throughout history has always needed to be revived. It's always needed to be renewed and it's always needed to be restored. This also happens in local churches today. It seems that churches go through lifestyles and they go through life cycles, so to say, that some say that it goes uh, a thriving church when it is unkept, when it has not experienced revival. It goes from a ministry to a movement to a museum to a mausoleum. That is the cycle of a church that is not continually seeking to hear the Lord, a church that's not continuing to experience revival. Yesterday's success becomes complacency and leads to tomorrow's failure. The church of Jesus Christ, we know, is eternally secure, meaning that since the church was instituted, there has never been a time throughout history where a local church did not exist. But just because we have that promise in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, it is not a promise that the Witten Place Baptist Church will always be here. It is a promise that churches, the church will exist, but it is not a promise for us. You see, the, the way that the church of Witten Place Baptist Church will continue to exist is by experiencing the blessings of the Lord by his people seeking after him. So we see here in 85 that this is a national lament with personal implications. What happens to the church can happen to us. We are the church. Wilt thou revive us again? William Cowper, you may see him as Brother Tim leads us in the hymnals, William Cowper is a famous hymnist. But he once wrote, Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Have you ever felt that way? Where is that blessedness? Where is the joy? Where is the excitement? Where is the fervor, the passion that I once felt when I met the Lord. First, he gives us here in Psalms 85, if you want to experience revival, if you want to experience revival in your personal life, you have to first set out what the psalmist gives us is pray for revival with confidence that God will answer. How should we pray for revival? The psalmist says, the first thing you do in praying for revival is you affirm God's goodness. Look at verse number one. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Verse number one begins with the praise not a petition. This is the model manner of prayer. Richard Phillips wrote about this. The way to be encouraged about God's grace in the future is to remember how gracious he has been in the past. Have you forgotten how good 
God has been for you? Have you forgotten how gracious the Lord has been to you? Lord, notice what he says. He starts this invoking the name of the Lord. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Verses 1 through 3 will really give us six things about what the Lord has done for his people. The first is to acknowledge that the Lord has been favorable unto his people in his land. Favor is the undeserved, the unexplainable delight that God has in his people. Psalms 30 and verse 5 says, For his anger endureth but a moment, but in his favor is life. Meaning his anger is momentary, but God's favor upon his people lasts a lifetime. He has been favorable to his people in his land. God made the ground to be fruitful to bless his people, but the second part of the verse here says, thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. This paints in our minds a, a beautiful picture here. Remember what the psalmist is speaking of. The psalmist is not speaking about lost people. He's speaking about God's people. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Some of us here could testify for a moment about a time in our lives, if we were honest this morning, and maybe some of us should testify this morning, about even after we were saved, how we found ourselves in captivity to sin. That even, I'm not talking about the kind of sin that just keeps you out of the church, but some of us have been in captivity to sin and been faithful to the house of God. But here the psalmist is painting this portrait that even after we were chosen by God, even after God had called us his people, that we had been taken into captivity. But our God has been so faithful to us that even when we were gone in sin, even when we had been pulled away, even when we bit the devil's bait, God has been faithful again to deliver us from the captivity of the devil. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Surely the Lord is good to his people. Surely the Lord has been good to us. Even more, not only does he say, surely is the Lord good to his people. Not only is the Lord good that even after he saves you and you fall back into sin, not only is he good to save you, not only is he good to go deliver you from captivity, but you know, I don't know if you're this way, but my mother was this way. When I was in trouble and she went to get me, when she arrived to get me, coming after that was the whipping of a lifetime. But look at what the Lord says here. Look at what the psalmist says here. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob and did what? Verse 2. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself 
from the fierceness of thine anger. He says the, the Lord has forgiven. Now, to understand that the idea of captivity, the idea of sin, when you look it up in the Hebrew word, it, it paints the portrait of being crushed under a rock. It means to paint a portrait that you are under a weight. It, when you need to be forgiven, it is painting this idea that you are under this burden of guilt. You are all covered in your sin. But when the Lord arrives to deliver you again from captivity, time and time again, when he delivers us, he also forgave the iniquity of his people. He's been faithful. This word covered here refers to the, the blood of Tommy. We, we understand this when, when the Lord has forgiven us. What the Lord done on the cross for us in his death. It wasn't only Danny Holt's past sins that were covered. It's not only Danny Holt's present sins, but it's Danny Holt's future sins, in which I'm sure there will be. They're all covered under the blood. Even more, the grace of forgiveness. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath, in verse 3. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. That word fierceness is to say the hotness of thine anger, the, the deep anger of the Lord. He says, thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Wrath is God's, hear me now, wrath is God's righteous response to unrighteousness. That is God's righteous response to our sins. He, he calls this the fierceness of thine anger. That's, that's the problem that we have today, even as Christians, is it not? That is, our, that is our dilemma, that God is holy and we are not. Holiness demands punishment for sin, but our problem is our solution. The Lord has withdrew his wrath and turned from his hot anger through Christ. Isaiah 53 and 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So we see here in verses 1 through 3, if you're seeking revival in your life, the first thing you have to do in verse 1 through 3 is acknowledge what the Lord has already done in your life. He's not only saved you, but even when you went off into sin after he saved you, he delivered you. And not only did he deliver you from the captivity of sin again, but he says in verse 2, he forgave you for that sin. Not only did he forgive you from that sin, verse 3 says he turned away his hot wrath that was due you when you went back into sin. So you want to experience revival, start at ground level. Remember all that God has done and continue to do for you in your life. Verses 4 through 7 gives us the next part of the painting about how to experience revival in your life. Ask the Lord to do it again. Verse 4, turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? 
wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Saved people never need to be saved again. But there will be many times that we need to ask the Lord to restore us again, to revive us again. This is what he says here in verse 4 in the two words, turn us. It means restore us, take us back to where we were. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger towards us to cease. The people had strayed, but they could not bring themselves back. Understand that. They could not bring themselves back to where they needed to be, but they asked the Lord to bring them back. Turn us, O Lord. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. They prayed with confidence in the character of God. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. God is a saving God. He's able and he's willing to rescue and deliver you. You see what I'm saying? They have asked God to turn them, to restore them, and they followed that statement of asking to be restored based on the fact that he's already been a God who's restored them before. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. Even more in verse number five, he said, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Are you going to be angry with us forever, Lord? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? These are rhetorical questions with that assume a negative answer because we understand that God will not be angry with us forever. God will not prolong his anger to all generations. But what he's pronouncing here, these questions, they, they express a genuine sorrow over sin. Notice what the psalmist does not say. He does not say that their sin isn't worthy for God to be angry with them in their generations following. He didn't say that their sin wasn't worthy to receive God's wrath, because it is. Matter of fact, I think it's in the book of Exodus that he says that he, he visits uh, the sins of the fathers upon the children. Uh, it's not that our sins aren't worthy. But these are rhetorical questions because he further will announce here in the psalm that he expects God to revive and to re restore them even shortly. Even uh, the prayer is also, no, it's not a selfish prayer. It's a prayer for future generations. We need revival today, but we also need revival for our children and our children's children. Even more, verses 5 and 6, the, the psalmist cries out, Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Verse 5 and 6 really re reveal two characteristics of revival. One, you see here, Wilt thou not revive us again? that thy people may rejoice in thee. You see that? A characteristic of revival gives us an attitude, a spirit in which we enjoy God. 
He says, wilt thou not revive us again? That what? That thy people may rejoice in thee. This is the reality of it all. That sin steals our joy in God. Psalms 51.12 says, the David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And I guess if you just worked in reverse about what was going on in David's life, you would quickly see that what robbed David of his joy was his sin with Bathsheba. Sin naturally destroys your joy. When you get sin in your life, don't be surprised if it goes on untreated by repenting and asking God to deal with it. Before long, you're, you're getting a little less out of the sermons. Before long, you find yourself not reading as much. Before long, you ain't in as many services as you used to be. Before long, you ain't in church at all. Before long, you're out in the world. Before long, it is a continual digression to where you get to a place where you find no joy in the Lord at all. But when we're revived... When we're revived, it is a time in which all of the things in the world in which we used to enjoy are put aside. And we are revived again in his people, in us as his people. Enjoy being with the Lord. Revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Even verse 6 states the nature of true joy. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Revival and joy is about experiencing God. Verse 7, show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. They want to experience, this, is, this verse is speaking of the, of the Lord's steadfast love upon them. Where do we see that? Show us thy mercy. That's what we receive from the Lord. Instead of his judgment, show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us what? Thy salvation. We understand John 3, 16, that for God so loved the world. What is that verse about? It's about our salvation. What the psalmist is saying here is, really, Lord, show us your salvation Again, amongst your people. Revival is not only about in our lives rejoicing in the Lord, but revival in our lives comes from a place where after we're revived, after we're right with God, our desire is that we would see the Lord show us his love again. How does he show us his love again? By showing his mercy upon those who are in sin and calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he's saying. When we're right with the Lord, when we're revived, we first want to be right with the Lord. And after we're right with the Lord, what is one of the first things that's manifested? We want others to be right with the Lord so that they can experience what we're experiencing. So he says, real revival is shown by a people who have a desire to walk with the Lord and by a people who have a desire to see their Lord work amongst people. 
he goes on to say here, not only is that manifested, but we see that it comes from a time revival in the life of the believer will bring about a time where we seek to obey God's wisdom. It's obedience. Revival happens in our lives, and we seek to obey God's word. We often read the story, and I've told you this before, uh, about July 8, 1741, when Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and shook the congregation there to the point where they began to weep, they began to cry. They said that they grabbed the pews and they grabbed the pillars and people said that they believed their very feet were slipping off into hell. But did I ever tell you that the week before Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, he preached it to his very own church and people went unmoved, unbothered, unaffected. Yet the very next week when he had the opportunity to preach there in Hartford or Enfield, Connecticut, he took that very same sermon unchanged. When it didn't work at his congregation, he didn't change his methods. He didn't change his ideas. He took the text and preached it again, and revival broke out, and it brought out the first great awakening. What's the difference? The people at his church did not seek to obey God's word. But the people at Enfield, Connecticut, they heard God's word and sought to obey it. Revival brings about the spirit of obedience in his people. We will seek to obey God's word. Notice here, verse 8. Is a, it's, a, it's a personal prayer. He, he goes personal here. The writer, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. He, he speaks here in a personal, I will, I will hear the words of the Lord. I will, I will hear the words of the Lord and I will apply it again to my own life. See, God speaks to his people through the written word. Even more, Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8 says, For he is our God. And we are his people and of uh, people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if ye will hear his voice and harden not your heart, as in the day of provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Today, today he says, if ye will hear his voice. That is the question that is put before us even here in verse number 8. Will you hear the words of the Lord? Will you hear the words of the Lord and apply it to your own life? What will you do with these messages? What will you do with God's word? 
What will we do week after week as we arrive here and hear messages and study God's word? Do we waste time in our minds jockeying out of line with the truths of the message, jockeying ourselves in a position where we feel safe and we somehow rationalize in our mind that this portion of the text doesn't apply to us or that even though he said it, we're still safe where we are. As long as we have this mentality, we are not truly crying out, wilt thou not revive us again? As long as we're behaving in that way, we're, we're, we're not really desiring revival in our own life. I want revival in my life. I want revival in this city. I want revival in this nation. We complain often about how the politician fails, how the president fails, how the Congress fails, how the Supreme Court fails. But what about our failures? If we're supposed to be the light to this darkened nation and we're not being the light, how can we complain about lost people behaving like lost people? Well, without excuse. Wilt thou not revive us again? Are we willing to hear? Today, if you hear his voice, he says in Psalms 95, and do what? This is the risk. And harden not your hearts. When we reject the voice of God, we, we rob ourselves. The, the Lord speaks to his people in peace, his wealth and well-being and wholeness, but he only speaks to his saints. Verse 8 warns us. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But notice what he says here. This is a personal testimony about what happened in his life. There was a time when he heard God's word. And it's meant something. There was a time when he heard the truths of God's word and it used to grip his heart. But he says, somewhere along the way, they turned to folly. He said, Lord, I will, I will, I will hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But... I'm going to hear it. I'm going to hear what you have to say, but let them not turn again to folly. Don't let them turn again to folly inside of me. Don't ever allow me again after you revive us, Lord. Don't ever let me get to a place again where your words become just nothing to me or they're just to the side and I begin to believe in my heart that I can do this and that I can do that and, and none of these words even really matter. Please, Lord, don't let them turn to folly again. Judges, the whole entire book of Judges is time after time of 12 judges in which God provided to his people. And every it's a tragedy because every man did that which was right in his own eyes. God would send a judge. He would deliver the people. That judge would die. They would fall into sin. And God would send another. And then they would fall into sin. And then God would send another. Time after time after time. This is what God did. God would send a judge to deliver his people. But then they would turn into the folly of idolatry and immorality and need to be delivered again. Grace is permanent in our lives. 
But grace is not a license to sin. John chapter 8 and verse 11, when the Lord arrived there and he was presented with the woman who had fallen into um, adultery after the Lord had done his part with those people and it was him and the woman who had committed adultery, he said, neither do I condemn you. But then he said, go and sin no more. There was a call for change. But no, oh, notice also this. There was a promise of God's word. Verse number nine. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. This is the third reference to salvation in this psalm. Here it tells us where salvation is located. Surely his salvation is where? Where do we find the geography of his salvation? Is nigh. Is nigh to where? Nigh to them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear is a mixture of love and respect for the Lord. To believe in God, to trust, and to obey him. The one who fear God, the ones who fear God, need fear nothing else. Also, he said here we can expect God's blessings. The final stanza of Psalms 85 is a, is a sneak preview of coming attractions to say. The prayer is over. Now the psalmist speaks with great expectations that God will hear his people's prayer for a revival. If you pray for rain, they always say, you bring an umbrella. If you pray for fire, don't bring an extinguisher. That may not make sense, but let me say more. I can see that didn't go over well. Expect God's redemptive and righteous blessings. God's redemptive blessings in verse 10. By the way, I meant fire in the pulpit. All right. That means I would have got sprayed with the extinguisher. That was hilarious. Another day. Verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Genesis chapter 29 and the 13th verse when Jacob went and met his uncle Laban, they kissed. It was to let Jacob know you have found peace from your troubles. Genesis chapter 45 and the 15th verse, when Joseph was there with his brothers and his brothers were weeping in terror that they found themselves before Joseph, the Bible tells us that Joseph kissed them and let them know peace is here in the midst of your troubles. On Calvary's hill, Righteousness and peace kissed each other. It ultimately took place at Calvary. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of God that sinners may have peace with God through him. Verse 11 says, 
Truth shall spring up out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Verses 10, 11 affirm the present blessings. Verses 12 through 13 affirm the future blessings. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. He's looking futuristically now. He's looked in the past and seen what the Lord has done for them in the past. He not only then turns and says, Lord, do that same thing you've done for us in the past. Do it again. And as the Lord is working in his heart, he has moved to a place where he is affirmed again about who his God is. And he looks forward in expectation and says, the Lord shall do these things because this is his nature. He shall spring out of the earth righteousness, and he shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. We understand in James, we went through the book of James James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights in whom, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The Lord gives good gifts. But the text says that the Lord's gifts that he gives to his people are not just spiritual. The Lord gives gifts in the way that he causes their land to increase. It causes their land to yield fruit. The Lord can do more than just spiritually bless us. He can bless our career. He can bless our finances. He can bless our health. He can bless our goals. Verse 11 sees blessings from above. Verse 12 sees uh, blessings below to us. And verse 13 sees the blessings which are before us. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Righteousness is like a soldier clearing out a path. It's like a herald announcing the king. God's righteousness goes before him and makes his footsteps away for his people. So what do we do? What do we do this morning? If we truly want revival in our lives, the first thing we have to do is go back to where we first were and all that the Lord has done for us to get here. Then we have to ask the Lord to do what he did in us back then, back when we were broken, back when we were submitting, back when we were obedient, back when we were wholeheartedly following him. We need to ask him that, that day that he made us obedient, then do that again in our lives. And then as he begins to do that again in our lives, it, we need to then take that same passion and begin to preach God's word to others that they may experience the love that we have experienced in him. And even all the more, we should live in an expectation and that as we serve the Lord, as we wholeheartedly give ourselves to the Lord, we can live with an expectation that surely the Lord will take care of his people. 
Surely it is safe to follow him. Surely he will lead a way for us. Surely we can follow in his steps and find safety in this life. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, Lord, I, I pray that you'll be with us even this day and this hour, Lord, and ask that you'll revive us again, that you'll do something in our hearts, Lord, and that which in which when we hear your word that we apply it to our lives and that we not, we not pass by the text or the scriptures that doesn't seem appealing to us, but that we find ourselves in a place where we are convicted by your word. Where we find ourselves not only convicted, but obedient to your word and following your word. Lord, I pray that you'll revive this nation again. I don't want to read about past great awakenings. I want to read about the great awakenings of the future. Lord, but I ask to, to do for you to do something in me that you do in all your people and revive us, Lord. Give us the passion, the fire, the zeal that we once had. Maybe some here this morning has never had that passion, that fire, that zeal of what it felt when we felt you move in our lives. Lord, I pray that today that you do the work that only you can do and save the sinner. If some have gone astray and you have brought back, Lord, let, it, let your name be magnified that you are the kind of God that delivers from captivity, that you've restored, Lord and that you bring great peace to your people. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number six.